HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Kiva, a Greenhorns partner and nonprofit that has helped hundreds of farmers raise over $2 million in microloans, all without charging any interest or fees. Find out more at us.kiva.org slash greenhorns. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers, by young farmers, today coming to you live from, well, where are we? We're in the Sulphur Springs Valley, in the shop, sorting the nuts and bolts. And I'm joined by Laurel from Buena Vida Farm in Fort Collins. No, she's not in Fort Collins. Laurel, where are you? You're in Fort Collins, Colorado. Yes. Welcome to the show. It's actually Ben from Stonehouse on the line here. Oh, golly. This is Ben from Stonehouse Farm in the Hudson Valley. Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm well today, Severin. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Nice and dusty. Do you want to talk a little bit about the farm you're running right now and then get into how you got to there? Sure. That sounds good. Uh, Right now, we're... I'm in my third year with this position, and we are 
with Stonehouse Farm, uh, and we grow 1,400 acres of organic grains, and we do about 1,000 acres of pasture and hay. And we're now expanding our fencing to include all our grain land in our pasture program so we can, we can graze a lot more. Um, we've designed the grain business in a, a, mainly to supply and serve local farms in our region, both on the buying side and on the selling side. So we have 110 customers, all of whom are small to medium-sized farms within 50 miles of our farm. And uh, we, we sell in our organic transition our grain we sold as non-GMO, and as we did that, we developed quite a uh, quite a local market. So we're continuing to with our non-GMO market by buying uh, non-GMO grain and grain grown in organic transition from local farms. Actually, almost all of it's grown in organic transition, except for one conventional grower who has agreed to spray no post-emergent herbicides or pesticides and has adopted cover crops. So I was willing to buy buy some of his grain. Uh, and on our own so, farm, we're using a minimum tillage system to grow all organic grain, uh, and we're launching a line of organic seeds. But we also sell cover crop grain, a lot of cover crop uh, seeds individually in its mixes, and we sell um, we sell some human grade grain as well. Holy smokes! So you want to talk about how um, you know where you've gotten to where you've gotten to that level from in the last four years? I mean, kind of like where you absolutely. where that land that so you're I, now I was, managing was. I, I absolutely. I grew up in Columbia County, where the farm is located on a small vegetable farm, and the farm I manage is called Stonehouse Farm. It's owned by the Rockefeller family, and they hired me at the time when they decided to convert it to organic. Um, and I was given a pretty loose mandate, but a pretty serious one, which was to figure out how to convert it to organic and show a viable, um, profitable form of organic farming on that scale while not competing with any local small farms and serving to provide a service for farms in our region. So, um, first off... And you're doing it, man. It was a GMO corn and soy system when we came in. Uh, and, and it's, and that was in 2013 when I started. And my first task was to figure out how to break out of that conventional commodity, uh, corn and soy into a first year of an organic transition. And, um, out of that, Seems we've like... evolved in, into now being a diversified organic grain farm. Well, it seems like this is relevant for, obviously it's wonderful that Rockefeller land can be used for organic feed, and obviously uh, Rockefeller uh, property has food growing down south in Westchester County that would make obvious sense as a value chain all the way into fattened pigs. Um, But it's a lot of land in the Hudson Valley, would we be surprised if you look at it um, from another region, is actually still in conventional corn and conventional soy. You want to talk about how your system is a model that can help other people make a brave decision or how you're documenting the protagonism that you're engaged with for the benefit of the region. Absolutely. So we actually, for documentation, we have a project on the farm that's called the Hudson Carbon, and it is a project in which we monitor 12 sites on our farm, all the agronomics of what we grew that given year, um, the profit and loss of that crop, our input costs, what techniques we used, 
And then we also monitor all of the car- the soil carbon, the living carbon in plants above the soil. The carbon is stored in bed plants on the surface and then multiple soil layers. Um, and we're launching our website in conjunction. It'll, it'll be available through the Stonehouse website as well to start sharing all this information. Um, one thing I am doing is I'm actively engaged with a lot of local farmers, conventional and organic. Um, and a lot of the conventional farmers are starting to pay attention to what we're doing. So whenever they ask for a tour, I'm very gracious and make sure to show them the whole farm. And the the big reason is really price. The uh, prices of commodity corn, soybeans, and wheat are really low. So even with really good yields, these producers uh, have a hard time making any money right now. Um, and in the conventional world, there has been a movement towards more cover crops. So it's not, I, I think, a mix of seeing us having some success um, uh, and also sort of hearing more and more about cover crops and building soil is making some conventional farmers more open-minded. But I think the biggest tool we have in our chest is the fact that we're a grain business and we buy grain from farms. So by offering farms a, a price for a product that's grown in transition to organic, we offer a price a premium that's about in between the conventional and organic price. Um, we can give farmers an incentive to start to switch. So those are sort of, uh, and, and that's really gaining a lot of interest. I actually have a little more interest from farmers than I can sell grain right now, but I think I'll be able to change that in the next six months with some new accounts. So um, so can you just so talk really, about how sorry, the businesses of beer and poultry and, and, and pastured hogs figure into your grain business? Absolutely. So I, I would say... Pastured poultry layers and broilers is the feed we make the most of, followed closely by by hog feed for pastured hogs. Um, and we uh, we supply these feeds to some farms who raise five hogs or two hogs, and some some of our customers raise 120 hogs in a year. Uh, and as far as poultry, we same thing. We supply a, a sort of a range of sizes, uh, all the way up to maybe small, medium size, but no real. No large commodity customers. Um, what we do is I price our grain to be com- at at or below the com- competition's pricing, which is mostly mill. Um, there's mills from Pennsylvania and Vermont, um, but they have a shipping disadvantage, so that helps us be competitive on price. Um, and we're sort of a down-home local business the way we operate. We have local employees. Um, and our phone, we take most of our orders by phone and some, some by our, our internet emailing system. I think once people get used to talking to us, they don't, they don't use that. Um, and so we're able to supply a good product at a competitive price and it's grown on land within 50 miles of our customers' land. So I think that the connection our customers feel is that their key input, their underlying input, is grounded to, to the local geology and is being grown in a way that's, that's regenerative. So um, the main, main areas where we help are on price, service, and uh, we also deliver. And we, we just really make sure no one ever runs out. So the, I, I think we provide a pretty key local service at this point. And so when you were thinking about this, this land that you got, um, what was informing the decisions you were making uh, to be strategic in the environment that you were operating? Because that land was GMO. It was had been sprayed a lot. 
It's right up in the in the mix. It's a big scale. How did you tackle? You know, how did you tackle such a big project? What like uh, what was your approach in your mind? The first year, while the farm was still conventional, I spent a lot of work on this. And it, we one main thing I did was visit several local farms of several different sizes, organic, non-organic, not certified, but using very natural practices, to get an idea of what farms' greatest needs for local products were, and and also to get an idea of how, you know, what could our farm do to serve the local farming community. And it was it was pretty easy in a way in that we were a grain farm with grain facilities and almost everybody told me grain is what they would like to get locally. Um, so I, it seemed like a pretty natural fit for us. And the biggest, the biggest challenge was figuring out how to switch the land over. Um, so then the, what I did there is instead of, I went field by field. I tested every, every field and I got soil tests. We did some chemical testing, and we found residuals of glyphosate. We found residuals of 2,4-D. Um, we, there are agrochemicals in most of the soils in America, and we found some in ours. Um, and what I decided to do to break that was an intensive cover cropping system. So following all of our soybeans, we planted blended cover crops and some winter wheat. And in the early spring, we underseeded that winter wheat with clover. And the idea for me was to get, especially with the blended cover crops, was to plant a lot of diversity into the ground, um, figuring some cover crops wouldn't do so well and others might do all right. Um, and that's exactly how it worked. We had some cover crops, such as chickling, vetch, and millet, that I think were more sensitive to some of the residuals in the soil, and they didn't take off very well. And then the following spring, we had some corn that was harvested late, about 400 acres. So that ground was fallow over the first winter. And the first spring, I, uh, I put that down into small grains. And the results of the first spring, the, especially the small grains in the first year that followed the, the corn, were not very good. And it really felt like the residual herbicides in the ground were holding back some of these small grains. But where we planted the blended cover crops and followed with corn, we ended up doing really well. Actually, for our first year, we averaged 133 bushels an acre on corn, and a lot of that was no-till organic corn. So we felt like that it was it was obvious where we blended cover crops and where we planted single grains. There's a big difference that blended cover crops performed much better. So going into that and, really and that is agronomy that you discovered um, through through practice that the corn could kind of ha- hack it through the residuals, whereas Going straight into small grains, they couldn't handle it. Did you? Was there any? Is there any literature on converting large acreage, um, or is this completely experiential and and the oral tradition that you're sharing with other people in your you know, on, in your field? There should be more literature about organic conversion, and there should be more of a market for products in organic conversion. But there there isn't. Where I found a lot of information was actually reading a conventional publication called The No-Till Farmer, where they write about a lot of farmers using all kinds of cover crop cocktails. So what I, could, what I knew is these are farmers using herbicides and they're getting success with cover crop cocktails afterwards. So I looked at a lot of that information to gauge what might work. Um, but then I also used a lot of my, my intuition. Um, I, I grew up farming and grew up around lots of cover crops. And the first, and I first started experimenting a little bit with blends in Maine when I farmed salad there. 
And I noticed it seemed to leave the soil in much better shape using the cocktails. Um, the Another big part of the organic transition um, that we that I think we did well was we, we focused on doing as much organic no-till as we could to grow soybeans and corn through our transition. And I think this allowed us to really keep our soil organic matter levels up, whereas in the areas where we tilled, um, it's four years later now, and, and I... Those initial areas where we tilled, we definitely lost more organic matter than where we started out with the no-till. And that allowed us to bring more organic matter. I also think more life into the soil and develop a little more of the soil fungi we wanted. So it, we, it, it sounds rough, but in a way, the herbicide wiped out weeds. It gave us better conditions to start out with organic no-till. But then we built some momentum in about half the fields where for the first two to three years, about half of our land and crops we never had to till. We were able to do no-till on no-till. Um, and in about the third year in, a lot of those fields started getting weedy, and we had to intervene with some tillage this past year. But we, I would say the best, the best advice I have for converting uh, you know, raw, fallow ground that was conventional is to, uh, if you're focused, if you want to grow crops the next year, to use a blended cover crop. And for corn or soybeans, try to find a minimum or no-till way to do it. Or, but ideally, the, the best, best fields we have are a couple fields that we seeded down right at the beginning. And looking at that soil now, um, that's really, really evolved. We've, it's never been tilled. It's had perennial roots in it. Those roots are getting deeper. And the soil, the soil is adding organic matter at a faster rate. So really the best way to convert land that I found through trial and error is really to seed it down to perennials and produce hay or pasture for a few years. For some farms, though, that's not an economic option, and it's, it's better off growing, growing annual crops in transition. Well, and good, what a good use of um, robber baron money to do important experimentation that's useful for the whole region, so we can commend the landowners for that. Um, can you talk about the kind of fencing feeling? Like now you're going to get in animals onto this rotation, and obviously people who live in corn soy landscapes um, are often familiar with the fact that the barns that used to house the dairy cows and the fences that used to enclose the paddocks um, are gone. And so getting that land into an animal rotation, which we all know brings the poop and the life back to the soil, is quite expensive. Can you talk about... Um, your approach to fencing? We focus mainly just on perimeter fences. So getting a perimeter up and then using much lower cost temporary fencing inside is uh, is our suggestion. That's what we're doing right now in fencing in our cropland. We're just building a perimeter fence. Um, we're going to be using portable water tanks for now, and um, we didn't want to build a water system without running large herds of cattle first. Um, but my main suggestion is you start with portable water and a and a prim, and good perimeter fencing, and use temporary on the inside. Um, it really gets expensive if you start separating out paddocks or uh, or using interior fen- using solid fencing for in the interior. It also is less less flexible. So we um, we're we're finding that perimeter fencing is is actually pretty affordable. And for example, we're perimeter fencing a uh, thousand acres this spring. Um, and that'll cost us, it'll be about $80,000 to run that perimeter, um, which ends up being about $80 an acre. So I, I, well, that's less than you would think. 
Yeah, it is. I was surprised. I've been dreading quoting this project, but it, it's a lot less than I would when I had planned. Um, it's also a pretty square piece, so there isn't a whole lot of uh, there aren't a lot too many turns. So it's uh, that makes it easy on us as well. Um, but my main, I would suggest that people keep it simple. Fence the perimeter that you want to keep the animals in, and then use uh, temporary means to move them within that perimeter. Now, before we go talk about what prepared you to take on this big job and and hopefully high-profile job, can you talk a little bit first about how the relevance of what you're suggesting, uh, grain for beer and grain for bread and grain for hogs locally versus grain for an anonymous export market, um, might be understood, interpreted, adopted um, throughout the region and, and how your role and your data might be used. Absolutely. So our, our, our main focus right now is getting our business built up to meet the demand. We have quite a bit of demand in the region. And the next stage is, is sort of evolving the business so that there's profit share involved for the, any farm supplying us with grain, our employees, and also potentially our customers. Um, we want to make it more of a cooperative effort, what we do. Um, but I, I think that the core model is that even if we can't, we can't quite get the yields here, we can get in Iowa. Or even if we are competing against Ukrainian organic corn or Romanian organic corn or Argentinian organic soybeans, the fact that we are so close to our customers gives us a really uh, big competitive advantage. It might cost us a little more to produce at times, but our, uh, our proximity gives us a big savings. So I think a lot of it has to do with scale. Um, we lost all of our, most of our intermediate scale for grain, for produce, for meat um, in the Northeast and across much of America over the last 50 years. And I think especially in grain, there's it, the whole the whole region is primed for a comeback. I think we could every 50 to 100 miles be seeing a new grain mill uh, within the next 10 years if the if farms keep pop, new farms keep coming up at the new rate. Um, there's just so many new farms. There's more and more demand, and some of those farms are growing and finding markets further away from home, which then makes opportunities for more farms closer to home. So I, I think the model that we have of buying locally from farms that don't want to get into processing um, and creating a robust marketing offer, operation to serve local farms is a model that could spread. Um, I think that grain farms in, in the Champlain Valley, I think grain farms in Maine, I think all, I think all the, those locations could use a similar service to what we're doing, and I'm hoping that our model can, can, can show that we can show a good viable model for that on the production side, but also on the business side. And I think geography itself runs us a big uh, advantage here. Well, and particularly, I mean, there's a really great project I'm sure you're aware of, the Willamette Bean and Grain Project in the Willamette yes. Valley. Uh, cooperation between farmers of really radically different scales, some of them doing variety trials and selling at farmer's markets and others of them milling and putting in thousands of acres and converting thousands of acres into grain out of grass. In their case, their commodity was grass seed. Yeah. Um, and so this whole cooperation between different scales of grower feels like, um, well, that's when you want a good aggregate in your concrete pour. You want 
particles of different scales. I agree. That's how I feel with our business is that, you know, our customers, a lot of them are much smaller farms, but by really being focused on serving them, um, I feel like the scales cross. Another thing we're going to be launching in 2018 is once we're perimeter fenced, we're going to start making parts of our rotation available to livestock farmers who are getting started. So we're going to give um, give low-cost to no-cost leases to pastured ho- uh, hog and poultry producers on our farm, um, which, could, which will serve those farms well for getting access to land. On my end, it'll serve us well in bringing some of the nutrients we're taking off the land and putting it back on the land. So I think the mix of scales is crucial. Um, we don't yet have enough small farmers in America to, to meet our food needs. Um, so what we need to do is create alliances of small, and lar- small, medium, and large farms with, that share similar value sets and figure out how, how do we collaborate, how do we build value chains, et cetera. So beautiful. And, of course, so much land to convert. My God, it's, it's just to put some statistics out into the radio field here. There's 280 million acres of farmland are sprayed annually with Roundup in the United States. So that poison that is living in the land is not living. It's killing in the land for a long time. It's persisting much beyond what the manufacturers may say, and other countries have changed their regulatory frameworks because, um, you know, future generations are going to have to cope with the residues of what we spray today, just as we are now and my fingers right now are covered in the dust of residues of yesteryear. Um, I'm sorry. One, it's amazing that even Russia banned Roundup. Uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, say what you like about him, but he felt Roundup was a threat to his own population, and this is not a guy who's known for his love of humanity. Uh, he banned Roundup, but we use it uh, We use a tremendous amount. Um, we're told that it's safe. We spray it on our children, on the lawn, under their swing sets. It is a, it's a really a pervasive chemical that needs to be understood fully because it, it's potentially the underlying cause of a lot of our modern diseases. And this is the key. We have an, an entire food system built around the use of Roundup, our no-till, non-GMO, or non, no-till GMO corn and soy is designed to take Roundup. That's what it is. Um, and just a, sort of blathering on about statistics, is that in, in New England? We, in New England, we produce a tremendous amount of. Uh, we produce our own organic milk, uh, and it's about twenty. I think twenty-six percent of the milk in Vermont is is grown organically. However, almost all that grain is imported from Canada, but most of that grain isn't even Canadian. It's imported to Canada from the Ukraine, from Romania, even some soybean from Argentina, relabeled as Canadian sent into the United States to feed mills here. So we actually, as far as a region in the Northeast, we really need to be addressing converting our land to organic. There's a huge demand locally with our mills here, but there's really no supply of organic uh, grain. We're actually taking on, now that we're certified organic, two organic dairies for their grain needs. Um, and all their grain was coming through Canada. So it's, uh, it, there's a tremendous opportunity for grain farmers to look forward and get out of commodity corn and bean production. And even if they're still commodity, it could be organic. There's a much better premium for them out there in our own region. So I, I really well, see New York State and – sorry, go ahead. 
No, particularly in this moment um, we're in politically, if people are feeling like they want to bring their dollars home. It seems like buying up land from farmers who are selling and putting it into a cover crop, you know, that you can just wait for three years. You don't have to have a plan immediately. <laughs> you don't, and that's my top advice after going through our transition the way we did. It was worth it because we built a non-GMO market for grain, and now I can buy transitional product from other farms and encourage them. But really, the best thing you can do is, like you say, seed it down and start planting. That's the best thing for the soil is if you don't till it and you have it planted to a good cover, especially perennial covers, then you can really start planting. And I'm hoping a big part of our research work on the farm is what is we compare how our, what farming rotations we use at various testing sites, and we figure out how much carbon we're bringing into the soil or losing from the soil based on what we've done there. Overall, we've seen gains, but of course, after tillage, our soil organic matter dips. But after a year or two of no-till with cover crops, we're seeing really nice increases in organic matter. We're hoping to build some metrics that could help farms market carbon credits down the road as well. So that just the very act of organic farming in a good way, and I mean organic in terms of organic matter farming, increasing your organic matter, improving your soil. Um, this is a fundamental ecosystem, ecosystem service that's crucial to the survival of humanity. So we're, we feel that by providing the metrics, we're hoping to get a couple voluntary buyers of these credits to, to really show how a market might work as I'm hoping in 10, 20 years, or, or much sooner, but I'm trying to be realistic, um, where we have a robust carbon market that isn't just taxing polluters, that's focused on rewarding sequesters, and then we could really have a solution to our, to our CO2 problem. So um, The solutions, I, I the solutions uh, are growing. The, obviously, the carbon is going out from the reserves and out into the atmosphere from the earth, and agriculture is a way to bring the carbon back into the earth through the bodies of plants, which convert it from the air into the into more durable carbon forms, which can then go and feed the soil microbes and keep that carbon as life in the soil. It's just in case anyone needed a little remedial reminder of how soil carbon works. Exactly. And, um, and We are admitting 9 billion tons of CO2 a year, and the nature as it is now is only re-sequestering 5 billion tons. So we're leaving in excess of 4 billion tons, 4 gigatons of CO2 in the atmosphere every year. Now, our ecosystems, our farmland, our grasslands, our forests, our wetlands are greatly depleted. So recharging them is a, a huge part of the issue, of course, in addition to cutting our emissions. But um, on the farming side, I think organic farming needs to be recognized as a, a huge part of the solution in the future. Holy moly. It's so inspiring listening to you. <laughs> well, can we talk a little bit about how you got to the point of having the skills to talk shop on this level and take on acreage of this level to make impact of this level with a family that, you know, is having so much land. You know, there's a lot of large land holdings out there and young people who are thinking about using their lives to fix carbon, uh, probably not affording to buy the land, but being able to fix the land. And, and, you know, and a whole other question I want to get to, but maybe it's going to be another session, is 
how do we share once there is a carbon market? How do those benefits get shared between those who own the capital, which is capitalism, uh, and the land base, and those whose knowledge and wisdom, stewardship, and moving of animals around is actually putting the carbon? How do we putting the carbon back into the earth? How do we line up that profit sharing that you were talking about? But maybe just talk a little how you got to the you know, two-minute version of your pre- preparedness sure. to enter into um, I was born job. on a small organic farm to parents who had both grown up in the suburbs. So they were sort of the, they were the greenhorns of my family. Um, and so they taught me a lot as I grew up. But I also saw, I think I, was, I had the benefit of learning a little quicker sometimes when I watched them think, do things not so efficiently, which I often experienced firsthand as I was the one who was asked to plant those tomatoes in that certain way. Um, later on, I, I started a small CSA on my own when I was 17 and did a couple of years of vegetable farming, and then I went to manage my father's salad greens farm for four years. Uh, out of that, I got an opportunity to farm a much larger salad farm in Maine, and I sort of fell into the traditional trap of um, of having of being stuck at a scale where I was competing in the market with much bigger players. Um, so I, I could, on a good week, I had, I had too much production, and, but then my prices were low. And I also didn't have enough land to really grow the volume I needed to to make money. So I was killing too much. And that really led me to an existential crisis of here I am as a quote-unquote organic farmer, but my organic matter is not going up. I'm hurting my soil. Um, and, and it was around that time that I decided I need to get out of this. And we sold our label to a, a bigger entity called State Garden. Um, they do Olivia's Organics. Um, and I got out. I went and worked with a biodynamic banana farm in the Dominican Republic, which is pretty much permaculture having huge results on your soil, and it really felt like the right thing again. And it was at that point that I really launched myself into how do we farm and look at our land as an ecosystem um, with permanence? How do we design our farm so that the the ecosystem functions are number one, and a function of the ecosystem is uh, food production? So I think... um, Really, the experience is growing vegetables in the ground and the financial pressure of not being the right scale and then that financial pressure leading to me hurting my own soil uh, led me to have an epiphany to really start thinking about new ways of farming. Um, And this grain opportunity came up. um, I started as an intern, uh, not a paid intern, really doing research to figure out how they could do their transition. Um, And as I went... um, and learn more, I got more qualified, and then the, the former manager of the farm gave his blessings and suggested that, that really I should be the one in charge of it. So it was sort of a mix of luck, um, deep interest, and then personal experience of, of not, having, uh, not having gotten the results I wanted right away. So um, I think that would be, I don't know if that's a good description, but that's how I put it. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. 